I've already seen my notes. That means next week you get part two. Because there's a lot in this chapter. And uh, there is no other way to do it but to break it in half. And so we're going to do that. Because we're doing a Revelation series in 22 weeks, more or less. And I think more is the bigger word that uh, goes with the set. So that is coming your way. There was a uh, pastor on a Sunday or a Saturday morning who typically would take the church bus out and fill it up with gasoline. And um, he got in the bus and took off down the road to to fill it with gasoline and saw a truck on the side of the road. A man out there in, with the hood up, and he's working on that on the side of the road. And the, the pastor, being a good pastor, is most pastors are, I hope, uh, pulled over and thought, well, maybe I can help this poor guy out with his problem. Well, the guy was pulling a, a trailer that looked very much like a cattle trailer in our way of thinking this. And uh, so the, the pastor went up to the man under the hood and said, I see you're, you've got some problems here. Is there any way I can help you out? And he says, well, pastor, I, I really don't know how you can help me out. It's this is broken. It's going to take me all day long to get this fixed. I know that. And my only problem is everything in my truck has to be at the zoo by 1 o'clock. And uh, so they look back there, and it's full of animals. And the pastor says, well, um, maybe I could help you out with that. I've got a bus. And so they loaded all the zoo animals onto the bus. And the the man was very appreciative of that, and he gave the, the pastor a bunch of money for it and said, thank you very much, I appreciate you doing that for me. And the man says, the pastor says, no problem. And he was gone. About 2 o'clock in the afternoon, while the man was still working on his truck, he saw the bus coming down the street. And the pastor stopped again, see how he's progressing, and he noticed the bus was still full of the zoo animals. And he says, uh, Pastor, I wanted you to take those to the zoo at 1 o'clock. He says, I did. You gave me so much money, I'm taking them for ice cream now. (laughs) I thought you'd need that today, going into Revelation 13. That's the only funny part of the whole service, I guarantee it. That's it. Now you're going to look at the bus thing entirely different, aren't you? Chapter 13. Follow along as I read. This is not a pretty chapter. All right? Just so you know, I'll prepare you for that. The dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horn were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power, and his throne, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to speak or to act for 42 months was given to him. 
And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in the heavens. And he also given to him, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword, he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performed great signs, so that even fire came down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceived those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which were given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except those who have the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who understand and cult and calculate the number of the beast, for that number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Lord, we have a pretty intense chapter in front of us here today, and as we look at it, uh, we recognize, first of all, it's in your word. And it was written down for our good, and there are much, many things for us to glean from it. And I pray that you help us keep our focus as we go through such a passage that, uh, first of all, as we've sung this morning, we have a Lord who has saved us, and the debt is paid, and the victory is ours, and we rejoice in that. Remind us over and over and over, even in our hearts as we study, that we belong to you, and what a glorious thing that is. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. In the last couple of weeks together, we've been looking at chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, and it started with two signs. Remember, the first sign was that of the woman who was about to give birth. second sign was that of the dragon, right? You remember all that pretty well, I hope. Well, those signs are speaking of real individuals, real events, but using pictures to describe something. Most of this, because it's prophetic in nature, are things that we can't possibly compare it to something on our earth right now. Some of these things are just too big for us to imagine, even with our capabilities of sci-fi movies and all the rest. Still, there is stuff that's kind of hard to imagine in our own minds. And the Lord uses pictures. And remember, this was written back in 90. A.D., 94, 95 A.D., and they had no clue in many of these pictures what that meant. 
it was a puzzle to them. And yet, as we're working through these, Mark, first of all, we're talking about real people and real events in picture form. And what we are also to remember is that we're talking about things that take place during the tribulation period. That is very important for us to keep in our minds, and I stress it and stress it and stress it. It hasn't happened yet. All right? That is still yet to come. The worst years of this earth are yet to come. They're yet to come. And we may not find real encouragement in that. I don't think anybody does, to be honest. Uh, but we stress this because the believer in Christ does not need to fear. We do not need to be afraid of such things as the tribulation period. First of all, as you know I teach this, we're going to be involved in the rapture before that. We're not going to be here. The tribulation is not for the church. It doesn't prepare the, the bride for the wedding day. Whoever beats up their bride before they get married. Doesn't make sense. All right? Simple way of saying it. The Lord takes us out before the tribulation begins. But in his wisdom and in his great love for his church, he recorded it in the book written to the church. Revelation's not written to the world. It's not their billboard warning signs of things yet to come so that they could prepare themselves. It's for the church so they understand what God is doing, that we have a sovereign God, and our Lord always keeps his promises. And that's why this book is before us. It's very much like an epistle with an awful lot of prophecy in it. That's our value of studying this book together, and I hope it's doing this, that it gives us a growing appreciation for the fact that Jesus loves us. That's what I want. If I could stress anything, that is it. He loves his church. He longs to be with his church. He's going to bring his church to himself, and he will keep all of his promises. And I want, I want that to be our growing appreciation all the way through this. So there's other values that I think also can add to what I'm saying here this morning. Like what Peter adds in 2 Peter 3.11. He says that these things are going to happen. So how should we live right now? What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Anytime we study a book like this, it ought to come back to us and say, boy, we need to live right. In the presence of an evil world, we, this world has one billboard of what Christ looks like. Guess who it is? It's his church. Are we doing a good job? Oh, I'll let you answer that yourself. But how are we ought to live in holy conduct and godliness? It should also teach us to take our grip off the things that are so temporary. We've got death grips on things. We've fastened to them. And yet, we are going to be part of the eternal, right? We've got, we're citizens of heaven. And yet, we get caught up in a world that's not going to last. That should be something that comes to our mind. And the other thing is, I think it should increase our desire to speak about Christ. These things are true that we're reading. And there are people on our planet today who do not believe it. Are you sure of that? There's unbelievers out there? Yes. 
And we who know the truth have mouths, don't we? We should be getting the message out. We should be sharing that with people. They do not believe these things. And if the rapture should occur today, they enter into the tribulation period. It's frightful. You don't want to be there. Do you want them there too? Just asking if it pricks your heart. Because we know it's true. They do not know it's true. Who's going to tell them? Just those things come to my mind. Now, that's, maybe you call that a rabbit trail. Maybe it's application at the beginning of the service. But whatever it is, we're talking about two signs. And the first sign was we've seen in chapter 12, the first two verses or three verses. And the second sign started after that. And we are still on the second sign. Just so you know, it carries for several chapters. Chapter 12, chapter 13, into chapter 14. This is the second sign, just drawn out in a lot of detail. Because where we ended last time, in verse 17 of chapter 12, was about a dragon. And the dragon was enraged with the woman who went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And, see how chapter 13 starts? And the dragon was still on the same sign. Was still on the same sign. The sign is of a terrible dragon who tries in every way he can to destroy the woman, her son, and her descendants. We've interpreted that because Scripture helped us with that. And the identity was given to us as well that the dragon is Satan himself. And he has hatred for Israel. We interpreted that too. And he has a relentless attempt to destroy Israel. He's not done yet. He's still trying. And he wanted to destroy the Savior. And he ultimately wanted to destroy the plan of God. At the end of chapter 12, he did not succeed. He did not succeed. But the sign's not over yet. In chapter 13, we continue it, and what's interesting here is the dragon decides, I need people to help. Watch what happens here as we go into chapter number 13. The dragon is seen standing there. Remember, you're reading a sign. The dragon is real. The events are real. We're told in pictures of a sign. People will go through this. I know it. I read the commentaries. They're looking for every single piece of it and trying to figure out what does that word mean? What does that word mean? Like, and. What does and mean? And they come up with some idea. The dragon, what's that? What does it mean that he stood? Nobody really asks questions like that, do they? What do you mean he stood? What does that mean? Does that, is that significant? What if he sat? Would that be different? I don't know. What's the meaning of the sand of the seashore? What is a sea? Matter of fact, which sea? It doesn't say. You see, sometimes you can get really bogged down in the details. And to be honest with you, with a lot of people, they add speculation all over it. Because Scripture doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you what those words mean. And so in that sense, I certainly cannot tell you what it means 
the scripture doesn't tell you what it means, and I could speculate like anybody else and give you quite a fun story, I think. But I'm just going to say that if scripture tells me what it says, I'll tell you too. Right now, all I see is a beast or a dragon standing on the sand of the seashore. Part of that you can visualize easy enough, can't you? That's where I'm going to leave it at. But what I do see, he's still active. He's still active. The dragon goes and gives power, it says. He gives a throne, it says. He gives great authority to a thing called the beast, who we're going to describe in a moment. The dragon is behind it. What you're about to read in chapter 13 about the beast, the dragon is behind it. And do you think it's for good? Never. Never for good. The dragon is mentioned again in verse number 4, by the way. What is he doing in verse number 4? He's receiving worship. Do you think he likes that? Oh yeah, he's been after that since the very start. Remember, he's the one who wanted to set his throne above the Most High God. Why? He likes worship. What did he ask Jesus to do? Worship me. And he offered him everything if he would. The dragon is behind what we're going to read in this chapter, verse 4 through 10 especially. The dragon is behind it. And there are a lot of ugly things in this chapter. There's a lot of ugly things. But that's true to the nature of the dragon. It's true to his nature. Satan has come to destroy. Jesus said so, right? He's come to destroy. He does nothing to help any situation for good. You will never say, boy, I thought glad the dragon was here today. Never will you say that. His whole point is to destroy and to tear up. He never leaves it good. We were talking about that in Sunday school today. You wouldn't want to rent your house to him. It won't be better when he gives that when he leaves it. It's always destruction, destruction, destruction. Everything he does is the mark of an enemy. You can be sure of that. And when we talk about the Antichrist, we're going to talk about him in a little bit. We're going to talk about the false prophet in a little bit. And understand something about this. The Antichrist is not his friend. The Antichrist is his servant. Satan doesn't have friends. He doesn't love. The nature of a friend is somebody you love. He does not love. He is full of hate. He does not love his own. He does not, there's no caring relationship. There's no genuine appeal to one another in that way. The Antichrist is his servant. So is the false prophet. And we're going to see these things as we go through here. Because Satan doesn't have any friends. He hates and he destroys, and he uses people for his own purpose. Now, that's not for you to say, boy, I feel sorry for the Antichrist now. <laughs> Don't think that either. Um, this is not a pretty picture, I've told you. But he does employ two individuals here to do his bidding during the tribulation period with the ultimate desire for him, the dragon, to receive worship. That's what he wants. And he's not, he's not unpleased if somebody else receives worship too, like the Antichrist, just so Christ doesn't get it. Just so God doesn't get it. 
He has sought that since the day unrighteousness was found in him. Now, most of this chapter focuses on these other individuals. But I wanted you to see the dragon is busy. And he's behind the scene and he's doing this. What we're about to see. All right. First beast. Let's walk through this characteristics, the description of the first beast. Start in verse number one. Then I saw, right after the first sentence, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. Now, what's interesting about this is he's described, first of all, in a way similar to the dragon himself. Back in chapter 12, the dragon was described as having ten hordes and seven heads. And now this beast is described as having ten horns and seven heads. But he's different. He's not the same. The dragon's there. The beast is coming up out of the, out of the uh, sea. So they're different individuals. But this one also has ten crowns, whereas the dragon only had seven. That could be an interesting study. But what's also alarming to me, really, is that on his heads were blasphemous names. We're going to encounter that word a lot. You saw it when we read, right? Blasphemy, 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 all over the place. Several words. What is that word? Blasphemy. Do you know, just by saying that word, you're speaking Greek? Ah, you didn't know you were Greek scholars, did you? That's actually a Greek word. The word blasphemy comes from the Greek itself. It is to slander, to speak injurious of another's good name. It's impious, it's reproachful speech, and it's usually aimed at divine majesty. In other words, slanderous speech directed toward God. It's the highest order of disrespect. It goes against God's character in words. It goes against God's actions in words. What I like about this, as we describe this beast and his blasphemy, his blasphemy, almost every verse is going to bring up the fact that he's like that. You're not going to like his mouth. But his mouth someday will stop. The end of the story, his mouth will stop. He will have a foul mouth, and you're not going to like this, but the Lord will stop his tongue. When we get to chapter 19, there's a great verse in verse 20. Okay, I'll give you a preview. Just a small preview, because I, th I think it helps a little bit. It says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. End of story. You say, Pastor, then let's not do the rest of this chapter. Well, we're going to finish the chapter. But, just so you understand, he is a terrible, terrible, terrible person to describe here. And yet, as we go through this, understand his judgment is already Stated, and it will happen. It will happen. By the way, there are only two who will ever live on this planet who will bypass the judgment seat and go right to the punishment. 
And that's the Antichrist and the false prophet. The only two. They're cast right here. Not even Judgment Day. The Lord just takes them and tosses them right into the lake of fire. Incredible. My, how evil they must be. Okay, back to the beast. More descriptions. Start in verse number 2. It says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. That's quite a description. How many of those creatures would you like to meet in the dark? (laughs) None of them. Well, maybe you could color it with a crayon and try to picture what this looks like. But it's a very unusual creature, and it's a frightening creature. And what's added to that is the fact that he was given power. He was given power. That means he did not have it to begin with. He was given power. The dragon gave him power. He was employed by Satan. Empowered by Satan. The power, the throne, and the authority was all given to him. And yet it comes with a price tag. This is a real person, by the way, that we're going to describe here. And it comes with a price tag because Satan only offers things because Satan wants something. Just like he said with Jesus when he took him up on a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, I said to Christ, I will give you all of these things if. You know what the if was. If you fall down and worship me. Do you think that his offer here is any less? He's got a servant. He gave him his position. He gave him his power. In verse 3 and 4, interesting parts of the sign of this beast. He has a wound on his head, it says. It's understood, because it's mentioned several times in here, that it was a fatal wound. And what does fatal mean to us? Died. And yet he's healed. Okay, that's a little unusual. What, what, what's the significance of that? What, what do we do with that? It must have been significant because it's mentioned over and over and over and it caused such amazement to the whole world that they decided to follow him because of it. In verse 12, and then later in verse number 14, it says the whole world worships the beast because he had a fatal wound and was healed. Now, what's the whole concept of anti-Christ? Against? Primarily we say against, don't we? But you know, in every way he wants to mimic him too. He wants to look like him. He wants to act like him. He wants people to be attracted to him. And what is it that we appreciate about our Savior is that he died and rose again. Here's an artificial, appears to be, an artificial attempt, a substitute. I can do that too. Hmm. That's pretty scary if that's all true. But he's got this wound, and no one's able to compare with that beast. Verse number 4 says, No one is able to wage war with him. And that is his description. It's very impressive. What does he do, though? Verse 5 through 10. He has a terrible mouth. Underscore that. With his mouth he speaks arrogant words and blasphemies for three and a half years. That's 42 months. That'd get kind of tiring after a while, wouldn't it? 
to listen to that. The Israelites had to listen to Goliath for 40 days or so. All he did was come out every day and taunt the living God and, and accuse them and threaten them and, and offer war with them. And that got old. <laughs> Imagine three and a half years of that. Blasphemy, blasphemy against God, against God's name. Verse number six points it out. This is their definition. He opens his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name. And his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. He blasphemes those who God loves as well. He just blasphemes left and right with his mouth. Verse 7 says he wages war as well. He wages war on believers. And, you may not like it, he defeats them. He overcomes them, it says. You see it in verse 7? He makes war with the saints. And to overcome them, defeats them. He has authority over everyone on earth. And you say, well, how can that be? We're the church. That's not the church. That's not the church. It's talking about a tribulational saint. Somebody who has come to know Christ and is living through this period. And you say, well, that's terrible. Well, chapter 6 of the book already told us there's a lot of martyrs. They're martyred for their faith. Who do you think is instigating that? The beast does. He persecutes God's people and he goes after them. So those who are saved are going to have a very, very tough life on this earth. It's going to be true. He wages war. He defeats them. His authority is over everyone on earth. Verse number 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Wow. Well, except for who? Those who are believers. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We say, okay, not everybody. But those who are unbelievers, every one of them will worship that beast. What a world this is going to be. What a mess. Let me add one more thing at the end of the chapter concerning him. Verse 13. No, verse 18. All the way jumped way down. Here is written, Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. You like math problems? Is that easy for you? I don't know how that number is reached. It says calculate. Calculate. Is that addition? Is that multiplication? Is that assigning some number uh, to represent a letter? And you, you've seen how these charts work, haven't you? Take somebody's name and you, every letter represents a number. And somehow you add all these up and they're supposed to equal 666. Now, math was not my big thing. That's why I'm not a mathematician today. I'm not even, you don't want me for your accountant that much either. All right? But uh, math is not my big thing. On those standardized tests, I had a strategy. And it worked pretty well, to tell the truth. Don't listen, kids. But if you make little patterns of yes or no dots, you know, like A for this one, let's go B with this one and C with this one and D, and, and just make this little pattern on your little scan test when you turn it in. It looks pretty. And you get some of them right. 
But I didn't know what to do with numbers. And then you give me a math problem here that doesn't even tell you how to get to it. The answer is 666. But what is the formula? It doesn't say. And that's kind of puzzling because for years people have not only tried to figure out the formula, but they don't like the combination of 666, do they? People say, oh, that's a terrible number to have. Remember when they started putting scanning devices in the grocery stores? That was written up in Christian publications all the time as, oh, there's a sign of the beast because some UPS symbol had three sixes in it. That's surely a sign of the beast. And so they, there was all kinds of warnings about your grocery stores back then. Look out, it's the Antichrist. He started scanners now. You know, and all these kind of things. You know, in the Middle Ages, you know who they thought this was? The Pope. They said, that's who the Antichrist is. How they came up with the math, I don't know. But they said it was the Antichrist. Who was it in the 30s and 40s of the 1900s? It was Hitler. He's the Antichrist. Who was it in 1980 that had a mark on his head? Mikhail Gorbachev. I've seen all these things in writing, in Christian literature. We've found the Antichrist. We've identified the Antichrist. This is the beast, because they're looking for things like that. I think that's interesting. Matter of fact, I don't want to know the formula, because I'm afraid if you add up the numbers, it might be me. <laughs> I, I'm always afraid of those kind of I said, don't tell me the formula. Here's what I do know, though. I'm pretty sure, since this passage is referring to a sign and the people of the events are of the tribulation period, it's not for the church to know the math formula. I think it's for those people to know it. I think it will be for them to identify the beast. I don't think it's for us. Scripture says a lot about the beast in Second Thessalonians 2. Let's just go there for a minute. I want to show you a couple of things. This might help you this morning understanding why I'm saying what I'm doing. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, start in verse 3. Paul's writing to the church, and he says, Let no one in any way deceive you. Start in verse 3. For it will not come. That is the day of the Lord. They, the believers of Thessalonica, were told by somebody, Oops, you missed the rapture. You're in the tribulation period. And how well does that go over, do you think? They were scared, it says. They were nervous. Their hope had just dissolved when they heard that. And they were experiencing the tribulation. How could that be? And Paul's writing to say, you're not in it. None of the characteristics of the tribulation is going on. Let me explain that to you, he says to them. It doesn't come unless the apostasy comes first. He says, and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed the son of destruction. Do you see him? No? Okay, then. You're not in the tribulation period. He's the one, by the way, in case you wonder what he looks like or what he does. Verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Do you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. 
Only he who is now restrained will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's a little complicated, I know, and someday we'll walk through this carefully. But it is a reference to the Holy Spirit and his his, uh, presence and activity in the church as well. And as long as the church is present, the Holy Spirit is there, here, in other words, because he's present in the body of Christ. Remove him, and you must remove the church. All this goes together very nicely because the rapture occurs and then he is, the Holy Spirit is removed from that kind of a presence and guess what happens? The lawless one is revealed. That's the tribulation period. Then, verse 8 says, then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That's the whole career of the Antichrist in half a verse. Verse number 8. That's the whole description of what he's about to do. Well, he's going to come, and then the Lord will slay him. And that's the end of his appearance. That is, verse 9, the one who is coming in accord to the activities of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. That's just like Revelation, isn't it? And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perished because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they may all be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. That's quite a neat passage, really. It's helpful to understand where we are in this passage that this individual is not going to be known by us. So quit trying to figure it out. It's not for us to know. It's not for the church to know. It's for those who follow. That will they understand the Antichrist. The Bible tells us a lot more about him in a lot of places, and our time is short, and I knew it would be today. But the characteristics of this lawless one is the same description in Second Thessalonians, as you read, as you read in this passage. The descriptions are the same. There's nothing about him that the church finds attractive. Thankfully, the church, this church, the body of Christ in the present day, will not be the target of his wickedness. He's concerned for the Jews, and he's going to attack them. That's the context here. And notice in 2 Thessalonians, if you're still there, in verse number 4, he takes his seat in the temple of God. It's always that way. He's always after that spot that belongs to God alone. That's the temple of the Jews, and it's going to exist because he's going to desecrate it. He's concerned about believers who will exist after the rapture, who will be on this earth. We're going to see that in the second half of this chapter. There's a lot here. I know. We started with the description today and some activities today, and our time is very, very short. But look at uh, verse number 9 and 10. Because right in the middle of all of this, God says, hit the pause button. Just hit the pause button for a minute. He who has ears to hear. If anyone does, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Did that encourage you? Just reading that, it's like, 
What, what is this? This little pause doesn't sound very happy, does it? Right in the middle of this thought, God says, Stop! I want to talk to you about one thing particular. If you have ears, listen. You say, Oh, oh, God said that before, didn't He? Isn't that what we saw in Revelation 2 and 3? With every single one of the churches, wasn't there a reference to the ears? And those who hear? Do you know what the difference is between those verses and this one? Every single time it says it to the churches, it says, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is lacking in this verse? He's not talking to the church. He's not talking to the church here. He says, Those who have ears, let him hear. Many times we pull this up and say, oh, we're talking about the church. We're talking about the church. Uh, That's not about the church. Some people say, well, the church needs to listen because they're going through the tribulation. They're not going through the tribulation. These verses were not written to them. So, pastor, then who is he talking to? Who is it that needs to persevere? Who needs to have faith to the end? Well, that is a picture of what a believer ought to be. But stop and look again at what he's saying. If anyone is destined for captivity, if anyone kills with the sword, here is perseverance and the faith of the saints. Let me turn this on you just a little bit and let you think about this. He's talking about the nature of our God. About His persistence. About His ability to stay the course of His plan. He is resolute. Understand that about our God. If anyone is destined for captivity, guess what happens? That's where they go. God doesn't change his plan just because the Antichrist is walking around the planet. If anyone kills with the sword, he is to die by the sword. Has God ever said that before? Oh, yes. It's all the way back in the Old Testament that God said that. Has God changed his mind? No. What do you think they're going to be doing all the way through the tribulation period? Killing people. Does God take that seriously? He still does. And he still will. And if somebody believes, he will persevere. Let me say this real simple. The dragon and the Antichrist show so much authority... And so much desire to destroy God's people. They can even take lives, but they cannot thwart God's plan. They cannot change what God has ultimately said will happen. That's a hard thing for some people to swallow. But when we stand here today and say, I trust God, do you know who you're trusting? Somebody who never changes. Isn't that good news? I think so. I find encouragement. In our day, we teach it this way. We say, salvation is secured in Christ. Not in me, not in you. And I'm glad that's true. Because if it's secured in Christ, it's going to stay. If it's secured in me, it's hopeless. (laughs) If it's secured in any of us, there's no hope there. But perseverance is something anchored in what God does, not in what we do. It's in what God does. 
And that's why I told you I'm going to turn the picture a little bit for you. Because if they're talking about faith, faith in who? God. Perseverance by who? God. It's His work. It's His work. All the way through here, it's speaking about those who simply should trust Him. Even in the midst of the worst events this world is ever going to see. You can trust Him. He will not change. When the worst characters are on scene and doing their things, God has not changed. God has not changed. Do we have ears to hear it? Because they need to hear it, but don't we? In our day and age, wouldn't it be nice to hear it one more time? God does not change. He is still God. No matter what happens in this world, He is still God. And the worst is yet to come, and God is still God. Still God. I like the little pause, don't you? Matter of fact, it's a great place to stop and say, okay, Pastor, at least give us one little good thing at the end of this one that we can hold for another week. God is still God. And He will be today, and He will be tomorrow. You trust Him? You trust Him? That's where we come down to. That's what I'm going to leave you with right now, because we've got to have comfort in the middle of chapter 13. I hate to tell you this, but I did already. Chapter 14 keeps it going. Well into chapter 15 before we switch signs. Next week I've got to talk about the second beast, because you know I didn't get that far. But uh, I like the pause, and I think it's a good pause. So let's stop right there and rejoice that we have such a great God. Heavenly Father... Your word is before us, and there are passages that are really, really, really frightening to read. And to know that this is true and it's going to happen is alarming. But the fact remains, what you have said for us, that we will be with you, is a glorious thing. We long for that. We know it's true. And yet, at the same time, we know those who do not know you today. And I pray that you give us a great concern for the unsaved. If things do not change, if they do not come to know you, this is where they're heading. And I pray that it strikes some, some spot in our heart right now, a compassion for the lost, that we will be quick to share what we know where our hope is, the greatness of our God, the beauty of our salvation through our Savior Jesus Christ, the glorious things that come with forgiveness and eternal life, and all the hope and the peace and the joy that we have in you. Thank you, Lord, that it's based on you and what you have done. Thank you that we're the recipients of that kind of love. When we study these things, I can't help but come back to the fact that you love us. And I thank you for it. It gives me hope. It gives me comfort in days like ours too. May we be quick to be lights in a dark world. Challenge us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.